0: Psalm 123, a psalm that is uh, a good one to turn to on the heels of having sung Great is Thy Faithfulness. I was thinking earlier today how special it is to be able to sing those especially familiar hymns of the faith where you can you know them and they're attached to so many good spiritual impulses and you can especially sing out and so Great is thy faithfulness is a good framing hymn for us to have in mind as we come to Psalm 123 this evening. And so I just want to read this brief psalm, the only four verses tonight, uh, as we begin. The psalmist writes, "'To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master,' as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Be gracious to us, O Lord, be gracious to us, for we are greatly filled with contempt. Our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. One of the things that I have loved about studying through the Psalms like we have done, is you get so many different perspectives on the nature of faith and the nature of trusting God as in, in various aspects of life. Here you see a very trusting opening to the Psalm in the first two verses about looking to looking to the Lord for grace. And then in the final two verses, you, you get almost a jarring contrast as he says that we're greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are ease, we're greatly filled with contempt. And you see, you see strong, unmovable faith side by side with the human experience of difficulty and distress. And those two things live side by side often in the souls of the trusting believer. And that's, that's helpful to me, I think. It helps us have realistic expectations about what faith is to look like you know there are those who think that if you if you have faith and there there's no trouble in your soul at all and the psalms would not support that uh, pollyannish view of of faith at all you see real faith in the midst of real difficulty and so if you're here this evening feeling the the weight of distress of whatever it may be It's comforting to come to this psalm and see words expressing the things that are in your heart. Lord, I trust you, but this is difficult. And to have those things side by side in a brief concentrated psalm like this, I trust is going to be edifying and encouraging for us all here this evening. Since it's been a couple of weeks, let me just remind you that we're going through the Psalms of Ascent, Psalms 120 to 134, a total of 15 psalms that are broken down into five triads. We're starting the second of the five triads here this evening in Psalm 123, and there's an observable pattern that we've looked at as we've studied these. The first psalm of each triad has a particular manifestation, a, a particular description of, of some kind of problem or distress that the psalmist is going through and, and is praying about. The second psalm of each triad is, focuses more particularly on the protection of God and, and the blessing of God in the, midst of those, in the midst of those kinds of adversity. And then the third psalm of each triad rests in the peace that that brings. And so there's this observable pattern. And one of the things that's kind of an incidental effect of the arrangement of the Songs of Ascent is this is that it gives us a sense that there's a cycle of life, there's a cycle of spiritual life that we go through as we go through difficulties and as we go through life walking with Christ over a period of time. There are times where problems seem to be elevated and particularly dominating our thoughts. And, and then we, we move into a time of, of meditating on the peace of God. Maybe there's a particular series of messages from a particular series of texts that give us a renewed sense of assurance that God is with us, that God is for us. Let me just repeat that because that's kind of important for us to always keep in mind. I, I like the simple things. I like the simple things of faith. If you are a Christian, God is with you and God is for you. Those simple six words say an awfully lot. The sovereign, loving, gracious God of the universe is with you. Indeed, by the indwelling Holy Spirit, he is in you, and as he is with you, it is important to remember that he is, he is for you. This is why Christ died for you. He died to secure you, to make you his own, to make you a child of God, and to bring you into his family. And if he loved you that much, if he loved you in the greater particulars, certainly he's going to love you and sustain you in the, in the smaller particulars of, of earthly life that are passing and transient anyway. God is with you. God is for you. And, and those, those biblically informed thoughts can take us a very long way. Now, as we looked at the first triad in Psalm one twenty, we saw that the the Psalms, psalmist, as we said, he was homesick among liars. He was far away from Jerusalem. He was anticipating the trip and uh, to to come up to worship, but he was he was among liars, and it was a discouraging time for him. Just as in the first psalm of this triad, the psalmist is in a discouraging time in psalm 121 we saw the psalmist extolling the lord as the keeper of his people look at psalm 121 verse 5 just by way of of a little bit of review here go back to verse 3 he who keeps you will not slumber he who keeps israel will neither slumber nor sleep The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade on your right hand. And in verse 7, we saw the Lord will keep you as in the original language. It's the same verb. The Lord will keep you from all evil. Verse 8, the Lord will keep your going and out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. The protection of God, even when you're homesick among liars. Well, and, and so all of a sudden, you have a, you have a completely different paradigm, a completely different context to think about the adversity that you're going through. Say, okay, this is an episode of adversity, but there is a greater reality that is informing what's happening to me here. There's a greater reality about the condition of my soul. The Lord is going to keep me, and I can trust Him through that, even as I articulate and express my concerns before Him. And then in Psalm 122, we saw the psalmist seeking the peace of the city of Jerusalem. Verse 6 in Psalm 122, pray for the peace of Jerusalem. May they prosper who love you. May peace be within your walls and prosperity within your palaces. For the sake of my brothers and my friends, I will now say, may peace be within you. And so, you, you, there's this, there's this sense of, if I recognize my problems, I remember the protection of God, and that brings me back to the position of peace, of shalom, of, of settled rest, a sense of wholeness that, that comes from being under the, the keeping hand of God. And that's a pattern that we see repeated through all 15 of them, as, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Well, here in Psalm 123, as we, as we come to the first psalm of this triad, we find the psalmist suffering under the contempt of his enemies, and in that condition, he asks God for grace. He asks God to show him favor in the midst of his suffering, And in keeping with the the simplicity of these songs of ascent, there's usually just a single theme that's being emphasized in each psalm as you go through them one by one. Here in this psalm, the theme is that he is looking to the Lord for grace to lessen his suffering. And that gives us a sense of That gives us a sense of of comfort and there's just a sense of the there's just a settling sense of the of the goodness of God even in the midst of our adversity that 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 we go to and that we lean upon as we as we trust in Him as we go through our trials. And so here in Psalm 123, the psalmist is giving us a, a an abbreviated look at trusting God in the midst of our trials. You can go to all kinds of passages in scripture to do that. We've providentially been led to Psalm 123 here this evening. And we're going to break this, uh, we're going to break this aspect of, of faith down, this aspect of trust down into two sections here this evening. First two verses, last two verses. And I've just, uh, I've just titled these sections, Looking to God and Looking for Grace looking to God and looking for grace. When when the problems come, when the waves start to hit your shore, you remember to look to God and you look for grace and you actually ask him for it. So let's look at this first section here this evening, looking to God. And this psalm opens up with a picturesque prayer for help. The language is is quite moving, it's quite poetic, it's, it's quite memorable. Let's read those first two verses again. As the psalmist says, "'To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress,' So our eyes look to the Lord our God until He is gracious to us. Four times in those two verses, you see the psalmist using the the, the metaphor of, of 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 our eyes. Our eyes are looking to you, and and as eyes of servants look to the mist, look to their to their master. And and this idea of lifting up my eyes echoes one of the prior psalms. In Psalm 121, if if you want to just look across maybe just the column of your page, from on mine, they're right next to each other. Psalm 121, the psalmist had used this metaphor in the past. And in, in an earlier psalm, he said, I will lift up my eyes to the mountains from where shall my help come from and so obviously and when he's speaking about his eyes here he's not speaking about his physical vision he's using his eyes to speak of something else he's using his eyes to speak of a spiritual reality it's a poetic expression one lexical resource says this He says, more than the I itself is implied by this word. The I is used to express knowledge, character, attitude, inclination, opinion, passion, and response. Here's the key phrase from this source that I'm quoting from. The I is a good barometer of the inner thoughts of man. He's saying, From my inner man, O God, I look to you. By faith I look to you whom I cannot see. I look to you for help in my trouble and in my adversity. And there you have this sense of this of this wholehearted union of his inner man his his thoughts his his attitudes his his desires his aspirations his affections they're all joined together they're all united together in looking up to looking up to the lord and trusting in him and asking him for the help that's going to come in the second section of the psalm now this this unified attitude of of mind is one that you know we we all understand we struggle with we go back and forth, but it's important for us to realize that this is the call of God on our soul, that we would, that our inner man would be united in trusting him. And, and the book of James warns us against the contrary. Go back, and in, in a very similar context, go to the New Testament, to the book of James. I assume that you all have that bookmarked after Nathaniel preached through it, and the pages are all well-worn as you followed him along. In his teaching through the book of James and as you know James opens up in chapter 1 verse verse 2 it opens up on the themes of on the theme of trials and different kinds of trials he says consider it all joy my brethren when you encounter various trials knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance And let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. What are you to do when you are in trials? You are to look to God. You are to look to God. That's what he says in verse 5. If you're in trials, okay. Verse 5, if you're not sure what the next step should be, verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God who gives to all generously and without reproach, and it will be given to him. In the midst of your trials, your your suffering, you're confused, what do you do? You go to God and you ask him for wisdom, But he places a condition on it, doesn't he? James does. He says, "'He must ask in faith without any doubting, "'for the one who doubts is like the surf of the sea, "'driven and tossed by the wind. "'For that man ought not to expect "'that he will receive anything from the Lord, "'being a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways.'" My point in leading you to that passage is just to reinforce the sense that there is this unified aspect to the soul that we collect our thoughts, we remind ourselves of truth, we remind ourselves of who our God is, who our Christ is, what he's done for us on the cross in redeeming us from sin, and we frame our response and we frame our approach to God in light of what we know to be true as we're exercising faith, we're not simply running into God's presence and and declaring all of our trouble without any consideration of who it is that we're talking to. We pause, we remind ourselves of what we know to be true, and from that position of strength, that position of, of knowing that God is with us and knowing that God is for us, then with that in mind, we lay our requests and our petitions before him. And if you've struggled in prayer over the years, if you struggle in prayer and, and trusting God in, in your trials, let me just encourage you to make it that simple. Before you pray, simply remind yourself, time or two or three, as the as need may be, and just say, before I speak to God, I just want to remind myself, God is with me and God is for me. If you are a Christian, those things are always true and those should always, those simple thoughts can do so much to, to engage your mind. God is with me here. This, there is more to the situation than what I see and what I feel. There is an invisible aspect to this situation that I know by faith in God's revealed word that, that God is with me. Jesus said in Matthew 28, Behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. And in addition to that, he's not only with me, he's for me. He's on my side. He's favorably disposed to me. He loves me. He cares for me. That's why Christ went to the cross on my behalf. And so in in, in my deepest gloom, in my deepest sorrow, in my most intimidating adversity, There's always this wide door of heaven open to me that I can approach with those thoughts in my mind. God is with me and God is for me. And this renews courage, it renews confidence, and it renews a a sense of persevering courage, persevering courage by which to pray and by which to approach life it's all gathered up in this in this expression our eyes are upon you our eyes look to the Lord our God I am I am I am insistently looking up to you O Lord the eyes are a mirror of the man's inner being and so what the psalmist is saying here as you go back to Psalm 123 if you're not back there already What the psalmist is saying here in Psalm 123 is is my inner man looks to God in my adversity. In other words, this psalm, my friends, this psalm is about your heart as you contemplate the way that it applies to you. This psalm is speaking to your heart. When adversity comes, do you fall apart? When adversity comes, do you wring your hands in concern about what's going to happen? Do you worry and and lose sleep on your bed? This is a reminder to you that the eyes of faith have something to look to. This psalm calls you out of that and says, okay, let's clear away the brush here. Let's clear away the debris in our mind and in our heart and get back to that single-minded simplicity of trusting God while we're waiting on him to help us and to deliver us. And so it's a psalm about spiritual sight, not physical sight. The eyes that look to the Lord is a phrase that expresses confidence and expectancy as God hears our prayer. We come not in just utter desperation and utter despair, we collect our thoughts, God is with me, God is for me, and therefore we come to him to pray in a spirit of confidence, a spirit of expectancy, that God hears me, that I expect him to respond in his time and in his way. The outcome is assured it's just a matter of the process of waiting for it to come to pass because it could be no other way than the fact that God will hear me and and help me because God is with me and God is for me I've said that 15 times probably haven't counted but the point is is that this is the repeated emphasis that we have to bring To our minds, we need to go through this again and again. Uh, For most of us, we need to go through this day by day, hour by hour. We go through this repeatedly. You don't just say it one time. You don't frame your mind that one time, and then everything is well for all of you know for the rest of your life. We and you see that you see that, my friends, by the fact that the the songs of ascent go in cycles, as I was saying you have your problem you're trusting in the protection of god it brings peace but something new comes there's a new new adversity that comes along and and you come back and you rehearse these things again and you go through the process again we we are no different than the most highly skilled of athletes who repeatedly go through the same motions in practice so that they can replicate them on the playing field. They don't just go through one repetition and, and then they're ready to play a game at a high level of competition. They do it repeatedly again and again and again. Well, if athletes need to do that and can do that and will do that for the sake of, of earthly competition, how much more then do we see our need to be able to do it and, and to be committed to that same kind of repetition? It is that repetition that helps us to grow in our spiritual maturity. And so the eyes that look to the Lord are expressing confidence and expectancy as he prays now well might he be confident of course he's confident when you realize what's what's framing his thoughts and mind he's praying out of an understanding of who god is and and look at it there in verse one to you i lift up my eyes oh you now that, that now he's going to He's going to ascribe things to the God that he's praying to. He's going to rehearse truth about the God that to whom he speaks. Oh, you, here's the expansion on the thought, you who are enthroned in the heavens. God reigns from heaven. And the throne idea here is picturing God as a sovereign king who is reigning over all of the universe. He is in perfect control of every detail that is happening, not only in your life, but in world affairs and throughout the, throughout the extent of the completely limitless universe. God is in control of it all. And the Psalms have made this point about God and His reign in heaven earlier in Psalm 115, if you would turn back there. Psalm 115. There is this ringing statement. It's a good verse to have marked in your margin, a good verse to memorize. Psalm 115 verse three says, our God is in the heavens. He does whatever he pleases. While we may be subject to adverse enemies, while we may not have full control over our own circumstances, and we don't, the fact is, is that God is not limited by what we see, by what we feel, or by what we are able to do. He sees all, He's omnipotent over all things, and all creatures, good and evil, are all under the direction of His divine providence, and He is in perfect control, and there is nothing that can raise up successfully against the ultimate will of God. Our God is in the heavens, and, and He does whatever He pleases. That's a great place. Hey, you know what? You, we could put it this way. that's a That's a great God to know. I'm glad I know him, and I'm glad he's with me, and I'm glad he's for me because that changes the whole way that I live to know that and to believe it. And, and the one who is, who is anchored in the sovereignty of God, the one who is confident of his blessing ultimately upon his people is going to live a completely different life than the one who has been taught that Satan is sovereign and you need to be worried about what Satan is doing. No, no, Satan is not sovereign. As John MacArthur has said, the devil is God's devil, He uses the devil to accomplish his own purposes, as you see clearly in the book of Job, for example. And so God is sovereign overall, and believing that changes the way that you think about life. It changes your courage and the kinds of decisions that you are willing to make. If God is sovereign, then you live differently. You live with confidence. You live with a sense of certainty of his ultimate blessing. And that is greatly liberating rather than being afraid that everything depends on whatever decision you're making next. No wonder people have mental breakdowns. They don't know God. And they're they're not thinking rightly and they don't, you know, they don't have this sense of assurance that God is with me and God is for me. I mean, this is, you know, you could you could empty out half of the or more of the psych wards throughout the land if you just simply if people were just simply able to be brought to that point. And you see in Psalm 115 what the the exhortation is in light of Psalm 115, verse 9. You see in verse 9 what the implication of, of that ringing endorsement of the sovereignty of God is. Verse 9, you, he calls on the people who fear the Lord to respond. "'O oh Israel, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield.'" Oh, house of Aaron, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. You who fear the Lord, trust in the Lord. He is their help and their shield. Verse 12. The Lord has been mindful of us. He's, He's with us. He's for us. And so what will the consequence of that be? What does What is the implication of that? Work your theology all the way through to the conclusion that it means for your circumstances. I'll tell you what it means, the psalmist says. Here's what that means. He will bless us, verse 12. He will bless the house of Israel. He will bless the house of Aaron. He will bless those who fear the Lord, the small together with the great. Now look, this is, this is magnificent truth, so simply expressed in what, in what is said here, but we dwell on it, and, the, and the, the Psalms and the Songs of Ascent repeat these themes because we need the repetition. We need to rehearse these things in our mind. And beloved, what I, what I trust that you, you're coming to learn over the course of months and years from God's Word is that, is that these truths affect and change the way that you live. These are not merely academic truths that we're, that we're talking about. This is not abstract theology just meant for theologians to have on their shelf someplace. This is vital to the way that you live. This is vital to the way that you think about your difficult family problems and your wayward sons and daughters and, and your difficult marriages and, 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 and the, the, all of the adversity that this fallen world brings upon us that is so heavy and weighs down on us. The way that you respond to these basic truths, God is with me and God is for me, the way that you respond to those is going to shape the way that you respond to everything else. This is this is this is a first order of importance. This this defines everything else about the way that you think about life. It allows it allows people to in their in their younger days to make bold decisions with courage and to take risks for the sake of the glory of God. It enables them to do that because they're confident of the way God will bless them. It, 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 gives, it gives parents, as they're raising their young children and they see their disobedience playing out day after day, and it just seems like all the discipline in the world is, is not doing any good, it gives them confidence to persevere. No, the Lord, the Lord is going to bless my efforts to honor Him in the way that I raise my children. It gives us confidence when jobs and family go against us. And beloved, beloved, I I never get tired of saying these kinds of things because I'm looking forward to the fruit of seeing it in ministry when I'm by your bedside sometime. When you believe this, it allows you to die with courage. It allows you to face death with a sense of peace and confidence that even though my earthly life is ebbing out of me, even though my outer man is decaying, I am being renewed in confidence. I am being renewed in my inner man day by day as the Lord gives me strength and I am fully confident of my, of my waiting home in heaven. This changes everything. This changes everything and it can all be simply reduced to, to, to believing based on the Word of God. God is with me and God is for me. He's with me in my youth, He's with me in my middle age, He's with me in my illness, He's with me on my deathbed, and He's for me. What could possibly go wrong? What could possibly go wrong in the end? What could possibly go wrong? And so I ask you, as for most of you, you know, as your pastor, as an elder of the church, I ask you, You know, do you know God like that? When adversity hits you, do you turn to him and trust him like that? Based on truth, walking by faith, not by sight, holding on to that anchor, even when everything in that you can see in your circumstances seems to contradict the faith that you hold. Even when you're looking on you know, literally looking on what seems to be the worst event in your life, can you can you come back and say, "No, God is with me. God is for me. It's going to be all right. I don't know how my heart is breaking, but it's going to be all right. That's the question. This is what Scripture holds up to us as being the the the, the response of faith. That we exercise, and in the New Testament era, this is, this is the faith that we exercise in response to Christ as we walk through life. Beloved, if he, if he shed his blood for you, this is just the argument from Romans chapter 8. If he shed his blood for you, if he bore your sins in his body on the cross if he suffered the agony of separation from his father and cried out my god my god why have you forsaken me and he did that all for you he did it for you by name if you're if you're a christian he didn't just do this as a blob to a general world hoping that someday someone would believe in him he did this with the conscious intention of saving you by name paul said he loves me he loved me and he gave himself up for me there was a conscious intent, there was a direct substitution, Christ for your sins. And if he did that out of love and grace and mercy for you to deliver you from sin and Satan and death and judgment, if he did all of that, don't you think surely that he's going to bless you in the end of of the life that he's appointed for you and that he's given to you? You don't need to know the outcome of the things that, that you're concerned about. You don't need to know how it turns out in detail. You simply need to know that that the Lord is going to bless me no matter what the outcome is. The Lord is going to bless me if my son gets saved. And you know what? The Lord is going to bless me if my son does not get saved. He's going to bless me if my dad gets saved. He's going to bless me if he doesn't. And on and on it goes. You start at these spiritual things and you just work through everything else in life. It could be no other way. God is with me, God is for me. This is, this is transforming truth. And it's not simply, this is not simply a mental game that we're playing. This is the way our inner man responds to the, responds to the truth that our God is enthroned in the heavens and he, he reigns over all, he does whatever he pleases. And so when we go to him in prayer, this is a long way to get to this point. So when we go to him in prayer, we're remembering who he is and we're praying that, and, and our eyes are looking to him. Our inner man is looking to him for grace. And so what you see being expressed here in verses one and two is you see a heart you see, the psalmist heart, depend. watch this, he is depending on the nature of God as he prays. He is depending on the nature of God as he prays. He is addressing God directly with an attitude of faith. And our Lord, even, in the New Testament, taught us to approach God with that same sense of dependence, that same exalted view of God trustingly depending upon him for all of our physical and spiritual needs that's what the lord's prayer is it's what it teaches us our father which art in heaven exalted god in the heaven my father who reigns in heaven i pray to you i address you now i worship you hallowed be your name i submit to you your kingdom come your will be done I depend upon you, O God. I I look to you, my Father. I hallow your name, and, and I depend upon you. Give us this day our daily bread. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. God, you're with me. You're for me. Provide for me physically. Forgive my sins, God. Protect me spiritually going forward. And he comes back, and it circles back full full circle with this emphasis and this this closing this closing emphasis on the sovereignty of God for thine is the kingdom and the power and the glory forever and ever. Amen. My eyes are on you. O God. That's what the Psalmist is saying here and you see it repeated in theme, if not exact parallel words in the new Testament. Now, as you move into verse two, the Psalmist is going to illustrate the quiet trust, the quiet submission of his heart. He says there in verse 2, he says, Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master, as the eyes of a maid to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God until he is gracious to us. Now, First of all, don't don't miss, uh, just as a matter of grammar, don't miss the fact that he has expanded from the singular to the plural as you move from verse 1 to verse 2. In verse 1, it's, I lift up my eyes, and yet as he writes the psalm, he's obviously speaking for others as well as he says in as he says at the end of verse 2 our eyes look to the lord our god until he is gracious to to us and so there's this it's not it's not just a selfish prayer he's looking out for the people of god as well and he compares his trust he uses the the cultural existence of his day as he writes he compares his trust to that of a slave That is waiting for a word from his master or a maid who is looking to her mistress. A good servants were loyal. They were loyal to their masters. They were submissive to their masters. They wanted to please their master. They trusted their master and they, they looked to him. They looked, the the maids looked to their mistress. They looked to them for direction. What is it that I'm to do now? master they look to them for provision lord i and and in this in this trusting submission of looking for direction and provision this is this marked the relationship of the healthy relationship between a servant and his master in in those days and what he's saying here is my heart O god is loyal to you my heart is dependently set upon you as I'm praying to you now. My heart is loyal. I'm submitted to you. I, I'm devoted to you. I'm looking nowhere else. My eyes are on you, not something else, not on what men can do for me. And so what you find here is that this is a prayer of, of expectation. It's not a prayer of desperation, this is a prayer of expectancy that says, God, because I know who you are, I know that eventually you will be gracious to me. And so I'm looking to you and I'm waiting on you as I do. He knows who God is and he is trusting in his faithfulness as he prays. His inner man looks up to God for help and deliverance. Now, what's fascinating to me is that this condition of heart and mind is present as he prays, particularly when he feels the need deeply. He has not yet had an experiential realization of the grace of God, You see that from verse 2, as he's looking to God, he's looking to God, remember that's the first section here, he says, until he is gracious to us. That implies, quite obviously, that the grace hasn't come yet. He's in a position of need as he's praying now. This is not a prayer for thanksgiving of having been delivered, this is a prayer of expectancy and need saying, God, I am in need and I'm going to wait here until you're gracious to me. And so, so and the, that goes back to something that I said earlier, you see the trust and you see the, the felt need side by side, two sides of the same coin of this prayer. God, I trust you, but as I'm trusting you, I'm telling you, I'm in a position of need right now. And so there is this, there is this confident expectancy, but there is this sense of, of vulnerability that is being expressed, this sense of perhaps oppression, and indeed oppression is a fitting word. There's this sense of vulnerability and oppression as he's praying this way. And so somehow he says, God, I'm asking you to intervene somehow. The idea of be gracious to us, it says, God, use your kindness to help us. That's that's the simplest way I know how to say. Be gracious to us. God, use use your power and use your kindness to help us in our situation. Just the simplicity of the prayer. You don't you don't need to you don't need a uh, you know the 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 vocabulary of a seminary professor in order to pray simply and profoundly. Just know that God is with you. God is for you. That God is good. God is great. God is kind. And, and let that frame all of your praying. And, beloved, when, when these convictions settle into your heart, and I'll say it again this changes life. This changes the way that you live if you believe these things. Well, he's been looking to God here in the first two verses. Now, as the psalm progresses, his petition turns from an expression of trust to an expression of lament, an expression of trust to an expression of lament. And here in the second section, you see him looking for grace. You see him looking for grace and all that we see here nothing about these last two verses contradicts anything in the earlier part of the psalm it's simply giving us the the detail that's prompting him to pray we see in these last two verses the occasion that is prompting him to look to God for uh, to look to God you now see what it is that he needs grace for and so in as we come into verse 3 you see that he is he is praying with trusting devotion because he is under assault. Look at verse 3. Be gracious to us, O Lord be gracious to us oh you see the urgency and in the emphasis in the repetition you can just you can almost hear a groan behind behind this prayer oh god be gracious to us oh lord be gracious to us it's just a there's a groan that's uh, that's behind this that he that he expresses later on and so three times there in the last half of verse two and the first half of verse three, be gracious to us, be gracious to us, be gracious to us. The repetition showing the, the urgency of this request on, on his heart. And so he needs deliverance from this, this pressing annoyance. He needs favor. And notice that by asking God for grace, He's there. there is an implied admission, God, I, I don't deserve this. You know, it's not because I'm righteous that you need to do this. He's asking for grace. Grace is, is the idea of favor given to the undeserving. This is a humble prayer that is asking God to relieve the misery of his sinful people his sinful people. There's, there's just so much humility woven through this. God, I trust you. God, I, I honor you. I know who you are. And God, I'm a sinner in need of grace here. I can't help myself. There's humility there. God, I don't deserve this. There's humility there. There's just this utter brokenness of spirit that nevertheless is looking to God with a, a unified heart of, of trusting in him. And so the request is grounded upon the, the basis for his appeal is not his goodness, but God's goodness. Where we come and we ask God not, it's not a demanding of what we deserve or what, what, what our right is. No, we're, we're spiritually bankrupt. We're poor in spirit. We're grieving over sin. And so there's just this broken-hearted situation physically and spiritually. God, I'm depending upon you and utterly dependent and utterly in need of your grace. I love this psalm. This is my favorite psalm of all of them. I say that every time. It's my favorite psalm tonight anyway, because it's the one the Lord has given to us for this evening. And so as Christians thinking in New Testament terms, when we go to pray, we're not relying on our own merit when we pray. And let me give you a word of encouragement, exhortation, maybe a, a, you know, a little shining light that this has been something I've been thinking about a lot for a year or more now, is that when you pray, Understand that, that all of your trust about God's response is rooted in His character and the intercession of Christ on your behalf. It's because God is sovereign, God is good to his people. It's because Christ it's it's because Christ by His merit and His shed blood has given us access to God. It's because Christ has commanded us to pray that we come and pray. And we're trusting in we're trusting in Christ as we pray not you say well where are you going with this here's where I'm going with this and this is this is utterly liberating this is utterly liberating and so contrary to what some teaching on prayer that I've been exposed to in the past anyway would lead you in another direction when I pray I am NOT trusting in my earnestness I'm I'm not trusting in my earnestness to turn the heart of God. When I pray, I'm not trusting in my eloquence and how well I can pray and and how, how fervent my prayer is. You know what? My prayers can never be fervent enough. They can never be eloquent enough. They can never be earnest enough. While I'm here in my sinful flesh... And I'm not, and I'm not going to trust in whether I'm crying when I'm praying or not. I'm not going to trust in anything of myself, anything about the way that I am presenting my petition. Uh, when you pray, my Christian brother, my Christian sister, when you pray, understand that you are to rely entirely on Christ when you pray. Father, I come to you because Christ has saved me. I come to you because the merit and blood of Christ gives me access. Father, I come because Christ has commanded me to pray to you. And so I'm resting and trusting in you, not in anything that I say, not in it, not in any verbal fireworks that I can put off in my prayer closet, nothing about that. You know, I've been a Christian for a few decades now, and the longer I go, the less impressed I am with the way I pray. I don't want to trust in the way that I pray because there's no merit in me, and so all of my merit, all all of the basis upon which I pray is rooted in Christ, and it's that way for you too. And that means you don't have to work up a whole lot of emotion. You don't have to whip yourself up into some kind of frenzy. You can be tired and and, and distracted and, and just go to him and say, Lord, I'm, I'm trusting in you. Lord, Father, hear my prayer for the sake of your son, Jesus Christ, not for my sake. Listen to me for the sake of what Christ has done on my behalf, not because of who I am. Listen for the sake of your son. And when we pray in that way, you have the attention of the, the ear of heaven is bent down to hear you. And so, be gracious to me speaks to his trust and his lack of merit, appealing to the character of God, not himself. And as we've been saying throughout the Psalm, side by side with his trusting focus on the grace of God, is a troubling irritation from man he is ticked as he is praying here verse 3 be gracious to us o lord be gracious for god here's why i want you to be gracious to us i'm laying out now the the occasion of my prayer for we are greatly filled with contempt our soul is greatly filled with the scoffing of those who are at ease and with the contempt of the proud. And that's the end of the psalm. There's no, there's nothing more to the psalm. That's the way that it ends. It's a, it's a remarkable, the abruptness of it simply, simply shows the, the emphasis that he's giving to it. And you don't need him to say anything else. He's already said everything. God, I'm, I'm looking to God and I'm looking for grace. And God, here's why I need it. He says, we are, we are being scorned. We are disliked. We are attacked by others. This ridicule of the arrogant against us is a constant irritation to our souls. We are being oppressed, O God, by men who have no regard for you. They're not men of faith. They hate you, therefore they hate us. Jesus said that, didn't he? If they hated me, they'll hate you too. It's not a surprise when it happens. But this dripping dismissal of the people of God was a provocation on their hearts and when he says, we're greatly filled, it it shows that this has been something sustained over time. This has been a painful assault. He was utterly repulsed, and he was weary from the scorn of these wicked men. And so what happens here, as we kind of wrap all of this up, you find this this tension, you might say, this joining together of his of his unified trust, this unified trust and the scorn, the the pressure of that, the, the 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 compression of that finds its release as he looks up vertically to God, and he looks to that God for grace. The pressure of life is ultimately simply. An instrument of God to bring you to Himself. The pressures of the trials, the worries of life, all of this is designed to bring you to this point. You say, well wait, wait a minute, wait a minute, yeah, life is hard and these things hurt and I'm, I'm concerned and I'm, I'm grieving and etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. But you step back from all of it and say, what's the ultimate purpose of this right now in my life? The ultimate purpose of this is for me to go to God, to look to God, and to look to Him for grace. This is designed to sanctify me and to renew my trust in Him. And so, when those trials hit, the answer is trusting dependence that looks up to God, so to speak, and says, God my eyes are on you my inner man is on you and I know I'm secure as I look to you Lord because you see my affliction you hear the taunts of those who oppose me you love your servants you love me you will deliver me in good time brother and sister in Christ Brother and sister in Christ, the work is the Lord's. You can leave with your cause with Him and know that you're safe. Look to your risen Christ, trust Him with all things, and know that in the end it will be well with your soul. Let's pray together. Father, we often stumble on this pilgrim pathway that we walk. We all know what it's like to be discouraged, to feel like quitting. Well, in those moments, Father, perhaps now for some of us, in the future, certainly for all of us, Please bring back to our memory what we have seen here from Psalm 123 and remind us of the great grace of God. You are with us in Christ. You are for us in Christ. Therefore, we know that we can come to you and lay our hearts before you, and not only lay our hearts before you, but know that in the end, it will be well with our souls Father, I pray for each one here that your mercy would motivate them to the most complete offer of themselves to Christ, to the highest level of obedience, and the deepest level of trust. May it be true for each one of us, and may these great realities, these these simple but profound realities, God is with us and God is for us. May it transform the way that we live from this day forth and forevermore. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, friend, thank you for joining us for Through the Psalms, a weekly ministry of the Truth Pulpit. And if you have the opportunity, we would love to invite you to join us on Sundays at 9 a.m. Eastern and Tuesdays, 7 p.m. Eastern, for our live stream from Truth Community Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. You can find the link at thetruthpulpit.com. Thanks, Don. And friend, through the Psalms is a weekend ministry of The Truth Pulpit. Be sure to join us next week for our study as Don continues teaching God's people God's Word. This message is copyrighted by Don Green. All rights reserved.